You know, I was thinking this week uh, about storms. You probably can imagine why. Last night, Mike and I sat on the porch and watched the storm rolling in and heard the thunder and the lightning and we even had a power outage for a little while at our house and and it reminded me of the storms that I used to to see when I lived in Guinea, West Africa. There were years when we were there where the rainy season that um, only lasted about three months out of the year, it, it rained three meters of rain. Three meters of rain in three months. And I remember waking up at night and opening up the window in the, in the, uh, because we had like these wooden shutters. So I would open up the shutters and the winds trying to blow them closed and I would see the coconut trees just swaying like 90 degrees, 45 to 45, like they were swaying so, so much. And just the vast quantities of water that fell. And, and that's so interesting because, well, one of the reasons is because for the rest of the year, it was dry. And there is no running water where we lived, at least not at first. We eventually put in a well, but there's no running water where we lived. And so I remember um, the rest of, so whenever it rained, they, they, people always put out the buckets, you know, you gather the water and, and save it and keep it. But when it didn't rain, I would join my friends and we would walk about a mile or two, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing, a mile down. Uh, to this spring, and we would fill our buckets and fill our tubs. And instead of carrying them, they would take um, a piece of cloth, uh, similar to a scarf, and they would roll it around on a like a flat, like a flat pancake, like a like a donut, like a cinnamon roll swirl type thing. And they would set it on their heads, and then we would help each other lift the tub, and they would carry the water on their heads back home. I always got teased because I got the smallest bucket. Uh, because when you've been carrying water on your head since you were two, you had these massive neck muscles, and I had not developed uh, those muscles at that point. So I always got teased a little bit, but it was a lot of fun. And, and when we brought the water back, we would use it very sparingly. Like you measured out how much water you used to wash the dishes. Um, when you washed your hands, you just used a very small amount. And it's funny how life happens and you move and you're in a different circumstance. Here, I now, I now live in, in Kennewick and I just turn the faucet on whenever I need water. And I don't even think about it. I don't even think about how, how much water I'm using, you know, or when I need water. Well, a couple weeks ago when my parents were here, our, our kitchen sink decided to explode. And it started leaking from, from, from the faucet, not just from the faucet, but from where you turn it on. And so we ended up having water everywhere and we couldn't, couldn't get it to stop. And so we had to turn the water off down underneath the sink. And it took us a couple days to figure out whether or not we could fix it or whether if we just needed to replace the whole thing. And so for a couple of days, we would still use it, but like we would, we would turn the water on slowly and look and see, is it going to, is it going to leak everywhere? And most of the time it worked just fine. And then a few times it leaked everywhere. We ended up having to replace the faucet, but I'm reminded how important water is. How we use it for everything. 
how we cannot live without water. Water is one of those things that is essential. As we continue in our series in the Gospel of John, we see a water theme throughout the book of John. We've already looked at a few stories that, that have to do with water. And water in the first century was used both for purification and for cleansing. John the Baptist baptized people in in water, baptized people in the river. And he said, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the spirit. And then in John two, we, we talked about this, Jesus's first miracle where he goes to this wedding and they run out of wine and it was such a shameful thing. And so they take the water from the purification pots and Jesus turns the water into wine. In chapter 3, Nicodemus comes at night to speak with Jesus, and Jesus says to him, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of water and spirit. Then in chapter 4, we read about the Samaritan woman at the well, and they were talking about water and who's going to give whom a drink, and Jesus told her, I can give you water that will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I can give you water that when you drink, you will never go thirsty again. Today, we're going to be in John 7, and we're going to eventually get to our water theme. This water, this idea of water is going to come back up. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there. But in John chapter 7 through chapter 10, actually, um, it describes what happens at the, the Feast of Tabernacles. There's about five different stories and conversations. And the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes referred to as the Feast of Booths, um, was one of the three major uh, festivals in Jerusalem where people uh, traveled to Jerusalem. There was this giant pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it was the most popular of the festivals because it was a joyful occasion. People remembered Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in temporary shelters. And so they built these tent-like temporary shelters that they would live in for a week. And it was right after the, the harvest of the grapes and olives and fruit. And so it was a time of celebration, celebrating that God had delivered them from the wilderness and also that God had given them a harvest. And so this is where we're going to pick up in John, John chapter 7. We're going to go through the whole chapter, so we're going to skip around a little bit because it's a pretty long chapter, but you're welcome to to get a Bible out. There should be some Bibles in front of you under the seats if you'd like to follow along or um, on your cell phone if if your eyesight's like mine and you can't read that font because it's too small. (laughs) Here we go, John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. 
For you, any time will do. I love the glimpse into Jesus' family here. For all of us, um, all, I would say all humanity, but for, for all of us who have some challenging family dynamics, <laughs> we get a little glimpse into the nuances of Jesus' family dynamics here. His brothers did not believe him. And so, uh, and yet, even though they didn't believe him, they didn't follow him, they had an agenda for him. They had an expectation for him. They, they wanted him to go public. It's like, you're doing all this stuff in secret. Go public. And why? I'm not sure. He had just lost a bunch of disciples from his previous teachings, so maybe that's part of it. But they were, they were pushing him. And I love seeing Jesus here, how he navigates family, like challenging family expectations and um, family dynamics. It, it humanizes him for me. I mean, I know he's fully God and fully human, but I really see the human side of him when I read about his family here. Jesus responds to his brothers and say, you go, you go to Jerusalem to the festival. It's not my time yet to go. And, and when they went, sure enough, everyone was talking about Jesus. Who is this guy? And the Jewish leaders were looking for him and watching and, and watching and waiting for him. After Jesus sends his brothers to Jerusalem, he does go, but he goes in secret. So he, he, he still goes, but he lays low. We're going to pick up the story in verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival, and the festival is a week long, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So he goes to Jerusalem. Halfway, he, he, he's public. He starts teaching. And there's such a divided opinion about him. Some are amazed at his teachings, while others claim that he's demon-possessed. Jesus stated publicly as he was teaching that he was sent by God and that he spoke the words of God. And in that, he makes a really interesting statement I just want to go to for a moment. In verse 17, Jesus says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God, anyone who follows God will be able to discern that Jesus' teaching is from God. And that, that's going to be important as the story plays out. Let's continue in verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? So you have this huge influx of people coming in for the festival, and a lot of them are from all over. But there's the locals in Jerusalem who know what's going on with the religious leaders, between the religious leaders and, and Jesus. And, and it's these local people who are saying, hey, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? And they haven't arrested him. Maybe they, they actually think they've concluded that he is the Messiah. And so the conversation unfolds. They have lots of questions because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Uh, for instance, they, they thought that the Messiah would come and no one would know where he was from until they knew who was the Messiah. Like they, they had these expectations and Jesus didn't quite fit that. They're like, well, Jesus, we know you grew up in Galilee. 
And, uh, and this is in Judea, which is southern Israel, and Galilee is northern Israel, and the, the Judeans really looked down upon the Galileans. There was a whole lot of bias and prejudice also playing into this story. As Jesus continued to teach, he accused the people of not knowing God. And he claimed, he says, I know God, and God sent me. And again, a divided reaction. Some believe, and others got angry. In verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. And they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priest and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So conversation continues. Things are escalating. And the teachers of the law send the temple guards to arrest him because they're worried that the crowds are believing in Jesus. Now, the temple guards were were actually... Um, Israelites, um, they were Levites who were responsible for maintaining order in the temple courts in the area around the temple. So they were, they weren't Roman soldiers. They were Jews who were under, um, uh, under the chief priest and the teachers of the law. And so they send him, send them to arrest Jesus. They have the authority to do that much. And get this, they go and they hear and they can't bring themselves to arrest Jesus. In fact, they go back to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and, and, and they're furious with him. And they say, why haven't you arrested him yet? And in verse 46, they reply, no one ever spoke the way this man does, which makes the religious leaders just livid. 47, he says, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. And in the midst of all this chaos, we see the religious leaders for who they, they truly are. They elevate themselves above the crowd. They separate themselves from the people putting on their arrogance and self-righteousness on full display as they disparage the majority of the people. They say they're not as educated as we are. They don't know the law like we do. There must be a curse on them for them to believe in Jesus, which is quite the contrast to what Jesus had just said, that anyone choosing to follow God will know that Jesus was sent by God. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God would be able to discern that Jesus is God and is from God. And it's much less about years and years of education and much more about genuine faith and commitment. So what was Jesus teaching that attracted so much attention at the Festival of Tabernacles. This was, this was the key part for me. It was really fun for me to research this week because I learned stuff I, I hadn't known before. There are so many pilgrims that came, and one of the most important memorable parts of the festival each year was the water-pouring pouring ceremony. 
And so what happened every morning for, for, for the seven days, every morning for the first six days, everyone gathered at the temple and the chief priests would come out holding a golden pitcher and he would walk, walk from the temple to the pool of Salem. And there, all the people would follow. It would be like this big parade, this big processional. They would walk with the priests, and they would get to the pool. And he would make a big show of it, and he would fill the golden pitcher. And then they would walk back to the temple singing and reciting scripture. And once they got to the temple gates, there would be this, the, the trumpet blast made out of a ram's horn. They would, they would blow the trumpet for three times, and there were these big shouts, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Three times this big crowd celebrating what God had done. And then they, they would walk inside the temple, and the priest would walk around, with, with the water, would walk around the altar, and then pour out the water as a drink offering to the Lord. And then there was also another offering, that they, the, wine, the daily wine offering, that they would pour out on the altar in front of the Lord. And then on the seventh day, so this happened six days in a row, but then on the last day, on the seventh day, this was like the, the finale, the grand finale. They would do this, but it was even bigger and more music, and more people, and the priests would walk around the altar seven times this time, and the temple choir would be, would be singing. And this was like what people remembered. This was the climactic point of the festival. And this water-pouring ritual was a reminder that when the Messiah came, God would provide miraculously. God would provide miraculously because the water represented so much. It represented the water that God provided while they were in the desert. This miraculous life-giving water that God had saved them, had delivered them in the past. And it represented God's promise to Israel that there was a Messiah coming who would save them. Throughout the Old Testament, water also represented the spirit of God. And in the promise that God would pour out his spirit. A couple verses in Isaiah 44, 3, we see that. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Then in Joel 2, starting in verse 28. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So this imagery of water was extremely important and a big part of this festival. This water-pouring ceremony that built up this excitement and celebration and reminded people that God has saved, God has provided, and God will save, and God will provide. And so that is really important background knowledge as we read then uh, verse Uh, starting in verse 37, because this is where Jesus really gets people's attention. 
Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival. So this is the seventh day. This is when the moment everyone's waiting for. Jesus stood and in a loud voice said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom, whom those who believed in him would later, uh, were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So every morning for six days, people are participating in this celebratory procession, this ceremony, celebrating what God has done and what God will do. God has promised to provide. God has promised to save us. God has promised a Messiah, promised an outpouring of God's spirit. And this was the grand finale. And it's in this moment that Jesus stands and shouts, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. Come and drink. Believe in me. And it's not like, you know, ca catching one bucket of rainwater <laughs> or carrying that one tub on your head. Believe in me, Jesus says, and you will have rivers of living water flowing through you, within you, sustaining you. Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior sent by God. And John, the author of the gospel, wants to make sure that the readers don't miss this connection. And so he, he spells it out clearly. By this, he meant the Spirit that the rivers of living water were the spirit of God. I love this image of rivers of living water. Uh, I, every now and then I go up to Yakima because um, my in-laws have a cabin there and there's a little stream uh, in front of the cabin. And so often I'll sit at that stream and just watch the water flow. And, and so many times I've wondered, I mean, if I look at that one spot, like how many gallons of water are passing that one spot in this one second, in this minute, in this day, in this season, and it never stops. The image of a river that continually flows with living water. Not stagnant water, but living water, water that gives life. What a beautiful metaphor for the Holy Spirit, the continually flowing, never-ending, infinite, life-giving presence of a God of love flowing within us. You know, as I read this story in John 7, I'm struck by the intensity and the chaos of the scene. I mean, there's so much going on, all these different things happening at once. There's this joyful celebration of God's past deliverance and the, the anticipation of, a, of the promise of future salvation. There's the religious leaders angry and trying to arrest and kill Jesus. Um, 
there's people genuinely wondering and questioning, like, who is this guy? Like, could he be the Messiah? There's others who are vehemently rejecting Jesus. Others convinced that he is the Messiah. And in the midst of all this chaos, Jesus is steady. And he continues to teach, pointing people to what God is doing. Over and over in John, we see how, how the author John continually contrasts how people respond to Jesus. So you see that in this text. There are those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who are following and those who are going to walk away. There are those who are genuine in their questions and in and, and curiosity. And then there, there are those who are just trying to trap Jesus. There are those who accept and reject. And in the midst of all this, Jesus says, Hey, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Friends, we also are invited to do the same today. I don't know where you're at, how chaotic your life is. Maybe it's a really calm, peaceful season. Maybe not. Wherever you're at, Jesus invites us to come and drink, to come and receive the Holy Spirit, this river of life-giving water, living water, this unending river within us. When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will flow through us like a river of living water. The promise is that the living presence of God will dwell within us and, and with us and around us. That's a big deal. <laughs> That's a big promise. And, and the Holy Spirit is not someone we can describe really easily or put in a box or say, this is what the Holy Spirit does. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the presence of God, is God living with us, within us. The Holy Spirit can teach us and guide us, bring hope and healing. It's a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of truth that reminds us what Jesus has said. The Spirit is our advocate interceding for us. The Spirit is working in the depths of our souls to create in us fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, I kind of have to acknowledge that we're from a lot of different backgrounds <laughs> and a lot of different um, understandings and ways of, of, of talking about the Holy Spirit and a lot of different experiences. And so maybe um, as, I, as I talk about the Holy Spirit here, that brings up some excitement and an anticipation for you, but maybe it just brings up a lot of questions and some hesitations for you. Wherever you're at there, I want, I want to invite us to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. Open ourselves up to the presence of God and, and to do so without an agenda. To do so without telling God, this is how I want my experience to be or this is what I you know, want you to do. Like to just open ourselves up, invite the Holy Spirit to be, live within us and to flow and to be a life-giving source in our life. To recognize today that the Spirit is a living, life-giving presence. 
And friends, we are invited into relationship with God through the Spirit. I want to say yes to that. (laughs) I invite you, whatever that looks like in your life, to say yes to that today and spend some time. It might be awkward. That's okay. (laughs) But spend some time talking to God, talking to the Spirit and saying, I open myself up to whatever good work you want to do in my life and my community. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for this invitation. We confess that so often we are so thirsty. We are so thirsty and you're offering living water. And sometimes it's still hard for us to accept it. So Lord, we confess and we turn towards you. We lean in. We ask that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the living God, the spirit of love would flow through us. This never-ending, life-giving river of living water. May your spirit wash over us. And Lord, as we ask, we have to simultaneously also ask for your help. Teach us how to listen. Teach us how to pay attention. Teach us how to surrender to you, to yield to the good work that the Spirit is doing. Give us, Lord, the wisdom and the courage to follow wherever your Spirit is leading. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.